welcome back to the Bad Activist Podcast. It's Tori here and today I am delighted to talk to Selena Shen, a good friend of mine, an intersectional wildlife conservationist, storyteller, photojournalist and ecologist. The reason I wanted to have Selena on the podcast today is because she cares deeply about the integration of protecting the environment and how that intertwines with racial justice and gender equality. In particular, her experiences as a Eurasian woman of colour in the environmental and conservation photojournalism space lends itself to discussing the inequalities that exist in this realm and how we can best improve it for future generations to come. I'm also super amazed by all of her accolades. She is a TEDx speaker, the youngest member of Panthera's Conservation Council, a youth council member of Reserva Youth Land Trust, and an advisory board member and an ambassador for Girls Who Click. She's also part of National Geographic Second Assistant Program and a contributor to the Everyday Extinction Collaborative. So I'm really, really excited to have Selena on the podcast today and discuss all things science, conservation, photojournalism and equality. Selena, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast as my like fellow Eurasian sister from another mister who has been in the conservation, science and filmmaking and photography world. I feel like this is going to be a really exciting conversation and I have so many questions to ask you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. And, you know, I was kind of recording your introduction and just listing out all of the amazing things that you've done. And I was just like, damn, how is she so young? And she's already done so much. And I think that's a testament to just how badass you are and how much you're achieving and like, smashing glass ceilings, of course, in the realms of photojournalism and conservation. So I kind of wanted to start things off by just asking you really simply, like what motivated you to pursue this line of work? As if the biological and ecological crisis isn't enough of a motivation for everyone, but what is it that makes your heart sing with regards to wildlife and conservation? That's it. Fantastic question, Tori. (laughs) And I honestly don't really know how to answer it. I think, yeah, it's just the ecological and biodiversity crisis. It's, and it comes from a deep obsession, love, adoration of nature and the natural world and of all living things. And I think it also just comes from a place of inherent curiosity. So my background is in obviously is in ecology. I'm a biologist by training and I'm still doing uh, my master's in tropical forest ecology. So I think it all started off with this curiosity and and wanting to learn more about the natural world and thinking and finding it so interesting. And, um, And as soon as I realized, or as soon as I was old enough to realize that, you know, the entire natural world and and biodiversity was being threatened enormously by human activities I was like we can't be doing this (laughs) so so I think that's it's a really simple answer but I think it also comes from quite often people have like a a clear story like oh I had this one experience and it completely changed the way I see the world or changed my life Mm. and I don't really have that I think I was just born with this inherent obsession yeah. Or this just intrinsic love. And one of the things that I try to do with my photography by, you know, capturing through visual storytelling the beauty of the natural world is I try to provoke or 
poke at the same intrinsic yeah. love and curiosity about our four nature that I think every single human being has. Right. That just kind of gets washed out um, as we grow older, you know, which is one of the things that I love about working with youth and working with children is that they just mm. are so unashamedly in awe. And I love that, like inspiring wonder in others is the key thing. And it's so easy with kids. You just right. you show them anything related to nature and almost always they're fascinated. They're, they're interested. They want to learn more. They, they know that other living things have feelings. They just know it in their heart. Whereas it's kind of trained out of us. Right. At an older age, yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's remarkable that, isn't it, that like kids are so, so inspired and so caring. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And I've I've worked with kids in the past and I've just found that their their beliefs are actually just really, really quite akin to those of us who are in these realms and and know quote unquote right from wrong. Of course there's a lot of nuance involved, but you know, I've worked with kids who have just been like, why are we cutting down all of these forests? Why yeah. are we destroying the planet? This is bad. And it's like, yeah, this is bad. Yeah. <laughs> so at what point did this, you know, kind of get drilled out of it? So I, I really respect the fact that you are trying to inspire people with this curiosity for the world and inspire yeah. through love as well. But yeah. I I also kind of wanted to you know touch into the fact that you mentioned it's really hard to pry apart the sort of human effects on the biodiversity crisis Mm -hmm. and kind of what's happening to the world which is why I think it's super important that you as a woman of color and also uh in this space which is very very dominated by white men Mm -hmm. really emphasize the intersections of different justice issues because far too often you know, I I can say this as somebody who's dipped in and out of this world, the storytelling there just isn't capturing what's happening in the real world and representing that. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's important that we have representation of voices from different, like diverse voices from in both the the world of STEM in science uh, in research, as well as the world of photojournalism, as well as the world of conservation. Because if our storytelling and if our solutions, if they don't consider the lives of different groups of people, and if they aren't inherently intersectional, then the solutions are simply just not sustainable. They, they simply won't work because they right. don't have everybody's interests at heart. And some people will be losing out or biodiversity will be losing out or yeah. the climate will be losing out. And that's just not the, that's, it just doesn't work. And it, what I do at least is I try to emphasize the importance of kind of like the three pillars <laughs> for me is the, the empowerment of women and girls and achieving racial justice and protecting the natural world is just so intertwined and we often don't realize that most of the solutions are, you know, they're, they're all co-benefiting the, right. these issues simultaneously. One of the clearest solutions to the climate crisis and biodiversity crisis that we can do, obviously it's more difficult in approach and it's easier said than done, but one of the simplest solutions that kind of encompasses many, many issues is empowering women and girls all over the world making sure that girls stay in education, 
and giving women reproductive rights over their own bodies, you know, bodily autonomy, but also autonomy with what they do with their lives, with their career, with their money, with their land. Right. And that is so clear <laughs> as a solution to so many environmental and social issues that um, it's kind of absurd that we're overlooking that because right. the people who are in charge of the decision-making and the people who are at the top aren't necessarily considering this or just completely overlook yeah. it entirely. I, I really like what you were saying about just how like empowering women is one of the many solutions to tackling biodiversity loss and the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. And I think also it's a super important thing to note as well that like there are so many women who have tended to the land, who know the land, um, whose femininity is so intertwined with caring about the planet that it gets me thinking to some of the conversations that you and I have had in the past and also the things that you talk about where far too often, perhaps in the conservation and scientists and photojournalism world, there is this idea that people who are in this realm have to look and behave a certain way and can't have mm -hmm. overlapping interests and can't express mm -hmm. their femininity or express interests in other realms. And it'd be great to kind of like hear your experiences with that or like, you know, what your take on that is. Yeah. People are very quick to pigeonhole you. Mm. They don't want intersectionality because it's too complicated. You know, it's especially in if I just look at, you know, the wildlife photography world, I wouldn't really call myself a wildlife photographer. I, it's more, you know, environmental photojournalism, but it's very, it's very white, it's very male dominated. It's very difficult to permeate that space with social issues, like social justice issues, because they're so focused exclusively on the wildlife or getting the photo or getting the shot. And it's the same, at least it's changing now in the conservation realm hopefully, <laughs> and in the biology and ecology realm as well, we're more and more we're realizing that we have to incorporate social justice, we have to incorporate social sciences and interdisciplinary thinking in order to have sustainable long-term solutions. Me entering this realm as a woman of color, relatively young, <laughs> mm. standing up for myself and my opinions, it doesn't, it, it ruffles some feathers to say the least sure. and then at the same time trying to bring in you know decolonization into biodiversity mm. research or or conservation practice and photojournalism trying to bring in feminism trying to bring in lgbtq plus rights into these spaces because one thing i didn't mention earlier is yeah it's empowerment of women and girls but essentially the the greater umbrella term for that would be changing the patriarchal way of 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 everything we do in the society and that encompasses lgbtq plus rights yeah. um and and gender issues and, and and trying to bring that into this world into these many worlds is really difficult because quite often they're also quite conservative um surprisingly a lot of conservation a lot of photography wildlife photography as well it has origins in colonization right. Right. it has origins in trophy hunting it has you know those are the those are the origins from from which these now kind of more friendly and open spaces came from so it is difficult yeah 
And it's at the same time, so many of these people who work in journalism, who work in conservation, they come from the global north or the, you know, in inverted commas, and they come from the Western world and they shoot stories and they travel to the global south where they're in, again, inverted commas, but in countries where there are higher concentrations of biodiversity, which are often POC dominated countries, especially in photojournalism, you're photographing people in, you're almost seeing them as objects in certain spaces. And the dignity with which we photograph people of color historically in journalism is not at the same level of the dignity that we give to photographing white people in Western spaces. And that just inherently affects how certain people in those spaces see people of color, interact with people of color. If they're always the ones who are in charge and directing photography space, you know, if they're the ones telling who to be photographed and how to coordinate a project and they're never working with people of color as equals, right. yeah. then here comes along a woman of color in the industry <laughs> expecting to be treated as an equal. And yes, it doesn't really work out so well. I can't and it's just absurd. It. It's absurd. It's absurd. And it's deeply, and I, I find it quite, you know, it's almost like neocolonialism. Right. Yeah. Going to these other countries, telling other, these people, you know, people of color or communities of color that have been exploited historically through colonization, have had their land and their resources and their natural capital exploited and taken from them and now telling them what they can and can't do with their land now that they have independence and autonomy yeah without considering the overlapping issues of social justice as well as biodiversity issues it's it's quite oblivious isn't it like so many people just you know what i'll take that back actually i think some people know exactly what they're doing and are happy to exploit different people and environments but also like you mentioned I completely agree with that so much of it is rooted in a very colonial mindset of Mm -hmm. you know old-time explorers going to the global south and discovering animals Mm -hmm. and it's like Mm -hmm. discovering according to whom you know it's like indigenous people have been living there for so long we've had you know documentation of a variety of different animals known as different things to uh, native people there but all of a sudden a white man decides to traverse across the globe and land on foreign untamed land uh, <laughs> uh and claim that they have discovered a species which they then capture and bring back to europe yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. it, and and not much has don't get me wrong like you mentioned these these realms seem somewhat uh more palatable and friendlier but actually these practices happen all the time yeah. and i think what you were saying about how people of color are not treated with dignity many of them I would go so far as saying, based on the experiences that I have seen and, and heard, many of them are often not afforded the same rights as the wildlife that people photograph. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of malpractice uh, in the conservation realm with wildlife and, and treating them as commodities as such. Yeah. But I would often think to myself, 
I see people caring more about the animals than they do the people who protect biodiversity or who have lived in tandem with nature for so long. Yeah. Um, but also failing to recognize the intersections of social justice and how perhaps colonization uh, and the wealthy global north have in instigated really big issues there like the first thing that comes to mind is trophy hunting yeah. uh, or the other thing that comes to mind is also the ivory trade where people are so quick to say murder the the poachers right yeah. and don't get me wrong poaching is a monstrosity but then why are people poaching exactly. what are their stories who are they trying to feed um, exactly and I see I've seen so many so many uh, white photographers, photojournalists, conservationists demonizing poachers and saying mm -hmm. that they deserve to be killed Absolutely. without appreciating the nuances involved uh, in, in how these, these behaviors came to be. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I completely agree with you there. And I can imagine that one faces many microaggressions and outright racism and sexism in this space because you are essentially challenging a whole system or industry that has been a certain way for so long mm -hmm. that I wonder if it's something that can be reformed or do you think it needs to be just like completely, you know, reimagined, mm -hmm. decolonized? Um, mm -hmm. How do you kind of interpret that? Well, that's a... It's <laughs> <laughs> a big one. There's no right yeah. or wrong. <laughs> I think, I think for many issues that are dear to my heart, I do think that a complete, absolute overhaul and reform is kind of essential and necessary. You know, the way we the way we value ourselves, the way we value the world around us, the way we engage with other human beings in society, the way our our absolute priority above all else is economic growth, uh, infinite economic growth on a finite planet. You know, I think the patriarchy has to be completely overturned. I think our agricultural systems need to be completely revolutionized if we want to live in a sustainable world in balance with, you know, the ecosystems we exist in. Right. But realistically... You have to take baby steps. <laughs> and we exist in these spaces now. And these problems are happening now. And although quite often I find myself having to make compromises. And yeah, it's all about trying to make the biggest impact with the resources and connections I have available to me at present. Um, and then it's like slowly working towards the greater goal. But at the moment, existing in this space especially in conservation and, and biodiversity and climate change. Like we don't have time to find the perfect world and, and overhaul it entirely and convince everybody. You know what I mean? We have to kind of like the Trojan horse method. You have right, to, right. <laughs> you have to exist in this system to try and instigate change from within it as well as from without. Um, yeah. And everybody in the movement plays a different role in this. And so I have just found myself to be playing this particular role of trying to, to, you know, help with these baby steps, but yeah, at the same time, striving towards a, a greater goal, because ultimately when it comes to the planet, we just don't have time, you know, lives, lives are at stake. Species are going extinct. Yeah. 
tipping points are being reached. Mm-hmm. Forests are burning and glaciers are melting and we we have to act immediately with actions that are proportionate to the challenge that we face. Mm. But to bounce off what you said earlier, because you, you mentioned, you know, you mentioned indigenous people, you mentioned how heavily colonized this, this industry and these spaces are, and that is so indicative, even in the science, even in the way we frame hypotheses, the way we ask questions, the way evolutionary theory has been developed. It is so male-oriented, and it is so deeply colonized, and it's now more and more, of course, it is changing, but the importance of incorporating indigenous wisdom into scientific knowledge, you know, just because it's indigenous wisdom that hasn't been validated empirically with data and modeling and statistics does not invalidate its truth. You can have multiple truths. Um, and that is so important to hold in mind when it comes to conservation issues and yeah. um, environmental issues. And that's why we need more people like you pioneering <laughs> and working communities and like actually prioritizing different viewpoints as well. Because even the scientific realm, the research realm, right? As much as I really valued my education, you know, Selena and I uh, both studied at Imperial. Selena is still studying at Imperial. I had a great education and I'm very grateful for it. But I couldn't help but notice every time I was reading research papers or learning about specific uh, forms of uh, research theory, there was so much of it that was rooted in a way of thinking that was extremely patriarchal, extremely colonial. Uh, And it's kind of scary in thinking that it's taken such a long time to really address that. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know about you, but I feel like we're on the cusp of trying to demand a greater change especially Mm -hmm. with so-called tipping points um and the biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis that i am hopeful to some degree that we we can really reform or rather transform these realms um Mm -hmm. i think it's important to be hopeful as well so you know what what kind of inspires you or rather gives you hope or motivates you to keep working within this realm even if it seems like it's overwhelmingly negative or stressful sometimes i have no other choice Mm. (laughs) um no it's what motivates me is spending time in nature right is getting to know a space a natural space or an individual animal or just yeah just spending time in nature it's so rewarding it is so healing and it energizes you because yeah. it's something so beautiful you just you there is no way you could possibly not do something or do everything you can and it's all in the you know it's all worth it there's mm-hmm. all the microaggressions and the racism and the bad experiences in the end it's for something so much bigger than you. It has existed for billions of years. It is, biodiversity is just an, another reason why I, I can find so much beauty in it is because of my scientific background. And, and having my scientific education and studying ecology is also so hopeful because there are so many solutions. There's so much research happening. But having all of that you know, scientific literacy and then being able to look at a forest or look at into the eyes of an orangutan or look 
and smell the soil. These are all just incredible things that I have the incredible privilege and honor to experience mm -hmm. and not everyone can. And perhaps some may not be able to in the future. And that is more than enough motivation to keep going. Yeah. You know what is is remarkable though is that it shouldn't be a privilege to experience nature. Oh yeah. It shouldn't be. Yeah. And it shouldn't be a privilege to be able to be in the presence of wildlife. I mean, this whole world, right, you know, prior to mm -hmm. when we exploited the land and, and, and killed thousands, if not, I mean, thousands upon thousands and thousands of, of land stewards was thriving with wildlife. And it's, it's tragic to think of where we are now. Um, and I, I just kind of wanted to, to ask as well, you know, with regards to the biodiversity crisis, a lot of people talk about it quite flippantly and, and mm -hmm. often conflate it with the climate crisis when both are very big issues that intertwine in and of themselves. But it would be great to kind of like for, for those listening who aren't entirely sure about the difference to just talk about, you know, why biodiversity in and of itself deserves its own um, focus and, and mm -hmm. be denoted as really important as well. Yeah. So the biodiversity crisis or ecological crisis, it has many names. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just as big of an issue as the climate crisis and it is not the same. They have many overlapping symptoms. They have many overlapping solutions but they're not identical and solving one isn't going to solve the other. Biodiversity is essentially is the diversity of life on earth at every scale you can imagine from the diversity of your genes to the diversity of cells in your body to the diversity of individuals in a population to the diversity of the populations across a landscape to the diversity of those landscapes across the world. And it is absolutely essential for all life on Earth. Right. All of these ecological processes, like the cycling of water or the cycling of carbon through a system, cycling of nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus through the system, mm -hmm. pollination, seed dispersal, predation, scavenging, these are all ecological processes that can only exist with a diverse system. For example, you know, there's this, if, if one pollinator is removed from the system through a change, through an ecosystem change, like a change in temperature, there was a storm and it just wiped out the nest of one species of bee. Well, at least we've got several other species of bees to kind of pick up the extra work. Um, and that is absolutely essential for the, the continued functioning of an ecosystem. And what we're doing is we are completely throwing these ecosystems off balance. We are removing so many more species than the ecosystem can compensate for. Yeah. We are destroying and interrupting these processes. We are taking, we are extracting, you know, sources of carbon that were stored away millions of years ago that should never have re-entered the system. And we're throwing that back in and putting everything into disequilibrium. And that essentially will interrupt the flows of life and threaten the exists our 
existence. It'll threaten the existence of humans as a species and our ability to exist here. And the sixth mass extinction, you know, we're on the cusp of it. We're, we're pushing countless species to the brink. Mm. And, and it's almost morbid to say, but in the end, even if there is a sixth mass extinction, life will go on. <laughs> there have been five before. It's almost slightly arrogant for humans to think that we are capable of completely obliterating all life on Earth. Right. Life will continue. Yeah, uh, it will take several. It will take several million years yeah. <laughs> for life to come back uh, in a way that is in remotely recognizable to us. Yeah, but humans won't. Mm. Yeah, and that's kind of what I talk about when I speak to people who don't necessarily value nature intrinsically as something that is worth protecting, regardless. Because in the end, we are digging our own graves. And many of the issues, for example, the things that we, we do to address the climate crisis, like tree planting schemes, enormous tree planting schemes. Yes, that's great for capturing carbon from the atmosphere. But what kind of trees are they? Where are they being planted? Are they a monoculture of trees? Are we destroying natural habitats like wetlands or marshes um, or migratory spaces in order to create those monoculture tree plantations. So if anything, sometimes the solutions to the climate crisis can actually be detrimental for biodiversity. Yeah. So it's a really important thing to address that all these issues have synergistic effects. Their consequences don't add up nicely. They add up exponentially. But also if we treat them as two separate issues mm. we can find solutions that work for both of them yeah at the same time <laughs> it's just we can just be more efficient sure. with what we do with our resources and time because we don't have lots of that left you know what i i really believe in is that nature or wildlife doesn't need us we need mm -hmm. nature and wildlife uh, and I think that that is such a fundamental aspect of what we need to start championing. That that is why the way that indigenous people have been living and the way that indigenous people see the world mm -hmm. is so important because it is so yes. devoid from the sort of uh, normalized rhetoric of how we think of nature as something yeah. to be conquered as something that is Absolutely. submissive and, and needs to be tamed. And it is is quite amazing, isn't it, how many conservationists still believe that they need to be there yes. in order yeah. to tame and manage the land because they're like, oh, well, if I don't manage it, who will? It will manage exactly. itself. Uh, we just need to leave it alone and stop destroying it. And I think yeah. that, that that is such a flawed aspect of of how the conservation realm operates. And it's always so nice to speak to people who are in this realm because, you know, that is that is my sort of primary, um, how should I say, like academic discipline and like where I came from and have since, you know, uh, fallen into different realms or rather I'm, you know, still trying to champion a multitude of different issues. But nobody can deny how intertwined these things are and we need to start addressing these uh, particular realms in in, in in order to save this planet 
to be honest. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things that you've mentioned is indigenous wisdom and indigenous thinking. And I find that to be akin to ecological thinking. It's this, we, and it's almost very, it's very patriarchal (laughs) to think that, and, and colonized way of thinking to think that we are at odds with nature. It's human versus nature. And in fact, no, it's, we are animals. We need to completely obliterate this anthropocentric, this human-centric and almost human arrogance of thinking that we are above nature and that we are above the processes that dictate nature and that we are above the consequences that nature will wreak upon the world if Mm -hmm. we put things out of balance. And this whole idea that we aren't part of the ecosystem anymore. We absolutely are. And what you said earlier, like, you know, nature and wildlife doesn't need us. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that we are capable of having a positive impact. We are capable of existing in the ecosystem in a positive, nurturing, nourishing, and reciprocal way. And it's this indigenous culture of reciprocity, of being able to give back as much as we take. Because... You know, we can, we can take, every, everything takes, uh, predator takes prey, uh, plants take water. It's, it's not, yeah, it's not, it's still part of life. Yeah, there are so many The circle of life. Mm. Yeah. But it's being able to respect, to respect and reciprocate and have a positive relationship. Because I do think that it is possible. And that's really the only way forward that we see ourselves as animals equal to other living things in the ecosystem and we see ourselves as existing within an ecological framework and being able to give back as much as we take and that is so it's such a beautiful thought but it's also a huge let's say equalizer because it also forces us to question how we treat each other within right. our own species. Yeah, how can sure. we possibly how could we possibly begin to see ourselves as equal with the natural world and live in a nourishing way and respectful and reciprocal way with the natural world if we can't even respect other people yeah. or in other communities from different cultures and backgrounds and different skin colors as ourselves. Mm-hmm. So it really kind of begs the question of, you know, we need to look in the mirror and address social justice issues um, as well as addressing these environmental issues because you can't really have one without the other. And these conservationists that go into the... Conservationists and journalists and scientists that go out into the world thinking that they are going to save, in inverted commas, nature. Well, it's not going to work if we can't even cooperate within ourselves. and. So true. Another thing that I really get bothered by is when people say, I'm giving a voice to nature. I'm giving a voice to the natural world. The natural world has its own voice. We just haven't been listening. Wildlife, animals, fungi, plants, the, the atmosphere, has they have, you know, they, well, it has... Sorry, don't like saying they or it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what pronouns, what pronouns to give to nature? Yeah. And that's another thing... Um, Indigenous people, like, when they talk about natural things, when they talk about animals and plants, they see them as living things. Right. And just the fact that we refer to animals and plants as it, yeah. we see them as objects right. for our use. Mm-hmm. And that is so wrong. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> but, um, 
But the natural world has been communicating to us that it is in crisis and that it is out of balance. And, you know, we've been able to interpret that through science and through data. Indigenous people have been able to interpret that through their own ways of communicating with nature that they have done for thousands of years. Yeah. Um, and we just haven't been listening. So this whole idea of, you know, the human arrogance that we give nature a voice, it's, it has been has no legs. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a primordial blob of, of, uh, yeah. of backwards thinking. Uh, you yeah. know, kind of further to, or rather to amend what I had said earlier, that mm-hmm. nature doesn't need us. Nature doesn't need our patriarchal, capitalistic, exploitative, yes. uh, homophobic, gendered... <laughs> yes, ex- nature doesn't need all of those bigoted views and of exploitation and subordination mm-hmm. i do believe we can live in harmony and i i think that i think you're right it's it's it is a symbiotic process of eco over ego that that yes. classic diagram comes to mind and yes. it's something that i that i always hold so dear um yeah we, we don't yeah it's uh it's it's so important to think about you know just how we exist within a complex web of mm-hmm. of networks and and species and oh it makes me want to just go frolic in the forest and lie on the yeah. floor and look for fungi and, and just smell the moss yeah i started i know this sounds super you know what i hate i hate how people use tree hugger as a derogatory word because term because exactly. it's not go freaking hug not. a tree people you will feel yeah. immensely better for it i I hugged a tree the other day and I was like, you are amazing. You are 160 years old and have seen more and Mm -hmm. encountered more than I have ever done in my life. And it breaks my heart Mm -hmm. to see how we disregard life forms that, you know, uh, we see as inert, energyless, characterless beings. One of the greatest forms of human arrogance is thinking that we're the most intelligent species on earth Mm. there are other forms of intelligence there are other ways of interpreting information and you know can we produce our own food with sunlight no that's so pathetic (laughs) (laughs) we need to depend on other things for our food that's so ridiculous and yeah like you said what's wrong with being a tree hugger go hug a tree go to a plant Here is an organism that can produce its own energy with sunlight and it gives this energy to everything else around it. It is a gift. Plants are a gift to us. Fungi are a gift. And they, the fact that we disregard them as lesser, the fact that we disregard them as, yeah, like you said, inert, unfeeling, non-sentient things. We don't know that. How could we possibly know that? You're so right when when we think about nature and animals as more intelligent or more specialized, like uh, in in the sort of like uh, anthropocentric sense and also Eurocentric mm-hmm. sense. I'm just like, can you communicate with fungal networks beneath <laughs> the surface? Do you have as many channels of color as the mantis shrimp does, which can see twelve <laughs> channels of color and detect UV? Uh, you know, and and polarized light compared to us measly humans can only detect three channels of color. A shrimp, you know, can see more than we can. And, 
it's it goes without saying that there are so many creatures out there who we would immediately deem less intelligent like for instance the the term bird brain has been used to uh <gasps> yeah demonize birds for that. their in lack of intelligence and like when we see caledonian crows who are so intelligent or the amazing birds of paradise that create such vibrant displays and nests to woo their their potential partners when in reality mm-hmm. like <laughs> we resort to tactics as humans where <laughs> we try and woo people with far less intricate and amazing <laughs> performances so yeah you know it's you're absolutely right the whole bird brain thing that really hurts mm. me at a personal you level are, you're <laughs> a bird, an avid bird lover that i know i am i am a bird person and yeah. <laughs> Most of my research is on birds, and some of my favorite birds are parrots, which are famously extremely intelligent. incredibly intelligent. And, you know, there are countless animals out there that can fashion tools Mm. and use tools. And, yeah, it's just so... I would love to see, genuinely, uh, no, I probably wouldn't survive, but, like, throw me into the deepest throngs of the jungle, and I wouldn't last a day compared to the many animals no. who are adapted to thrive and survive in those um, those mm-hmm. environments. I mean, there are mm-hmm. so many countless examples of how animals are so adapted to their environment, but also innovative to the point where when their environments are threatened, they find very rapid ways to adapt, uh, even if, yeah. you know, they're detrimental in the long run. You know, we, we can't. We can't say that animals aren't intelligent because they are so intelligent in so mm. many diverse forms. And I think that that is also part of, you know, trying to dismantle this Eurocentric way of thinking that there is only one form of superiority and intelligence, and that is being a white man from the global north. Um, yeah. No hate to white men out there, yeah. but like, let's be real. Let's let's really try and think about these things and, and dismantle these uh, these patriarchal heteronormative and destructive systems uh, that exist Mm -hmm. and are harming the planet so yeah Mm -hmm. and harming ourselves and harming each other it's so clear even in even in the way we talk about and think about evolution it's so rooted in competition survival of the fittest the strongest the the one with the biggest teeth the biggest male the whatnot that those are the ones that survive when in fact you know, to to quote the great Lynn Margulis, uh, an extraordinary biologist, she said, when, if you look at biodiversity, more often than not, you're going to find collaboration. You're going to find symbiosis. And all life on Earth is facilitated by the collaboration of different species and symbiosis and symbiotic relationships. And even if you look at with human species so much of civilization and how we consider you know what we see as progress is through compassion and through care i think this is probably a very well this is a a, a well exhausted not necessarily a quote but reference a well exhausted reference is um what was the first indication of you know, a modern society in inverted commas or what, or a civilization. And it's not, it's not tools and it's not a sword or violent weapons and it's not agriculture. It's 
the remains of a person who had a healed femur, I believe. So it meant that somebody thousands, probably millions, I'm not entirely sure, but thousands and thousands of years ago, an individual broke their leg, and rather than being left behind to die, a group of people came together to look after that person and to care for them and to heal them and nurse them back to health. And that, I think, is the, <laughs> is the most powerful indicator of, of what society looks like. And we need to start doing that for, for the world around yeah. us and extend our empathy beyond the boundary of our own species or our own community or our own race or gender or what, you know, social construct of gender. I am... Um... I always, you know, me and Julia talk about this quite a lot. And one of Julia's uh, dreams or goals, goals rather, uh, is to have a a communal living space with amazing people and, uh, you know, forage from the land and like really try and go back to the roots of what it means to be human. Because if you think about the world that we live in, we live in, we live separated from nature. A lot of us, many of us in cities, we live alone. We mm-hmm. value romantic love above kinship and platonic love. And it's, it's, it's quite frankly really affecting humans as well. It's affecting the way yeah. that we see the rest of the world. It's affecting the way mm-hmm. that we deem others more civilized or less civilized than others. And mm-hmm. a part of me is just kind of like, Fuck it all. I'm going to go find a nice cabin in the woods and hang out with my mates for a long time and 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 start my own permaculture farm. <laughs> I would love and that. Befriend all of the birds and the bees and the mammals and and the fungi. Yeah, exactly. It would just be ah, that is bliss. Yeah. yeah. Selena, this has been such a wholesome, empowering insightful and inspiring conversation and i would love 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 if you could you know drop some little uh handles for people to follow you um and also maybe just leave our listeners with a statement of kind of hope and inspiration and love for the natural world well thank you it was such (laughs) an honor to speak with you and to get to speak about what I love and what I do and my experiences and yes I hope that we can all oh my gosh it's a lot of pressure to come up with one phrase <laughs> that encompasses everything yeah I, know, I hope one. I hope that we can all acknowledge our place in the world as one with nature as one as part of an ecosystem in a reciprocal and nourishing relationship and we need to reject and turn away from this capitalist, patriarchal, colonialist form of an extractivist relationship with the natural world and help each other and help the world around us. I love that. That's so beautiful. Thank you so much. And where can people find you? Oh yes, people can find me on Instagram at Selena X Chen. That's Selena X C H I E N. Or on my website, selenachen.com. Uh, or on Twitter with the same handle. That's where you can find me. And feel free to reach out and ask any questions. I'm always happy to talk about all of these topics. Thank you so much, Selena. That Thank was you. incredible. 
Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in to this episode. Please do engage with Selena and her work, um, and you can definitely get in touch with her, as she mentioned, and feel free to get in touch with us here at Bad Activist Collective. And we would be super, super grateful if you could rate our podcast, follow us. This has been me, Tori, and Bad Activist is a production of Climate Control Projects. Until next time, 